0: You know, we live in a, um, in an age where sincerity is often mistaken for truth and where good intentions are placed on an equal plane with right behavior. And the result is often a conflicting message, to say the least. I like the story that I heard of a Southern minister who was completing a sermon on the evils of drinking alcoholic beverages when he said this. He said, if I had all the beer in the world, I'd take it and that port pour it in the river. He said, if I had all the wine in the world, I would take it and that port pour it in the river. And if I had all the whiskey in the world, I would take it and I would pour it into the river. Completing his sermon, he sat down and the hymn director got up and with kind of a smirk on his face, he said, if you'll grab your hymn books, we'll sing, shall we gather at the river? <laughs> you know, as we continue through the, uh, through the book of Acts, we come to a passage in Acts chapter 3 that reminds us that it is possible it is highly probable at times that we are sincere but wrong. In Acts chapter 3, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 3, starting with verse 12. As we look at this passage that helps us to understand that there are many in the world today who are sincere in their beliefs, they're sincere in their, act, they're sincere in their actions, but as God's Word will have us to realize they are wrong. And as Danny said this morning, some of us may be here and sincere and the things that we believe, the things that we do, and we need to be open and teachable because God's Word will set us free if we're doing that which is wrong before God or believing that which is not correct. And so in Acts chapter 3, starting with verse 12, we read these words, but when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? It says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus, the One whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release Him. It says, but you disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the Prince of Life, the One whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in His name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through Him has given Him this perfect health in the presence of you all. It says, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that His Christ should suffer, He has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and return that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient times. Moses said, The Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To Him you shall give heed to everything that He says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophets shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. says, And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Now if you'll recall in our last message we saw a dramatic example of the power and the authority that is associated with the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we had seen an incident that took place, a miracle actually, of a man who had been born lame and for over 40 years he was carried daily to the temple where he was placed in front of the steps so that those who were coming into the temple he could beg money and receive alms from them. And in one dramatic moment in time we see that his lifelong infirmity was was taken from him and that he was restored to perfect health. And I can only imagine how the crowd was in awe. You know, the Bible says the word awe, the miracles, wonders, and signs. The word wonder has to do with the idea of just not not only wondering what's going on or trying to understand or take in what God is doing, but also to the point where our jaws just drop as we see a miracle unfold right before our very eyes. They were in awe of what was going on. And we can only begin to imagine how elated this man would have been not at just being healed, but after a lifetime of exclusion sat outside the temple because he could not enter because he was because of the infirmity that he had the handicap that he had as he was healed to be able to for the first time in his life to be able to do what he saw all of those around him do to go into the temple and worship and praise God and the Bible says he was dancing and leaping and praising God it's also extremely important to note that this miracle which created awe and wonder was also a sign remember everything God does it's for a purpose And it's for a sign, and the sign was that they would turn and believe in Jesus Christ of Nazareth as the Savior of the world, God's long-awaited promised one. The purpose of Jesus' healing was that it would be a sign that those around him would believe that he was the one who was promised by God, who came into the world to save the world from sin. Everything Jesus did was a sign to indicate that he was who he claimed to be and he was who God said he would be. In this one dramatic moment, the Book of Isaiah, chapter 35, verse 6, says this as to the 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 ministry of the Messiah: "The lame will leap like a deer." Could you imagine as we take a look at verses 6-11, through look back there again just to refresh as we lay a foundation for this morning. But it says, But Peter said, I don't possess silver and gold as he spoke to the man who was lame. He says, I don't possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. Literally, be walking. It says, And seizing Him by His right hand, He raised Him up, and immediately His feet and His ankles were strengthened. And with a leap... He stood upright and began to walk and He entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God and all the people saw Him walking and praising God and they saw Him and knew Him as the man who for 40 some years had been laying there, handicapped, unable to walk, infirm from birth. And in that one miraculous moment, that one miracle alone would have been enough. But it wasn't the only one. In fact, in the book of John, it says in the last chapter of John in John chapter 20 that the, the, the words of the world and the books of the world could not contain everything that Jesus did. And the things that He did, He did for the purpose that you may believe that He is the Son of God. The miracles of raising the dead and raising, and raising up the lame who couldn't walk. What had taken place here was a mere continuation of everything that Jesus began to do and to teach. It was a solid argument, a strong argument for the fact that Jesus Christ is alive and well today. And so as we look at this miracle, a fulfillment of the book of Isaiah where the prophet said, you'll know the Savior, you'll know the promised one of God by the things that He does, and one of those things will be the lame will leap up and jump like a deer. And I thought, have you ever, we, I, you know, when I lived back east, and I don't know if you've ever been out anywhere in the country or whatever, but when we lived in Pennsylvania and we'd go through the mountains, you know, you see those uh, deer crossing signs. And, uh, and there's a good reason for that because it's one of the most dangerous things in the world for anybody that's ever driven in those areas where a deer, when, when they're frightened, will jump out or try to cross a road. And you know, many people, not only deer, but people get killed or there's automobile accidents because of it. We were driving through the mountains once and a deer jumped out and jumped over the windshield or the hood of the car. And you talk about, you know, wow, what a beautiful illustration. I'm thinking about this guy laying there and he's jumping up and he's, he's leaping like a deer. And I like to say, you know, this, uh, the, the deer in headlight look? Well, he didn't have the deer and headlight look. Everybody else watching him leap around had deer and headlight look, you know. And it was awesome to think that you know this was a sign that God had given them so that they would believe and trust in Jesus Christ as a Savior. And so, as we look at this, and this uh, it, it, Peter will now take advantage of the opportunity because the Bible says that there was a multitude of people who were present in the temple, and Peter would take an op- take this opportunity as I challenged us last time that we met. Anytime God does something in our life that draws an audience to us, whether it's an audience of one or an audience of thousands, it is a time and the place to be able to share the goodness of God. To share with them the truth of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ. To be able to deflect all the attention from us and onto God. Peter knew how to do that. And any time he saw a multitude assembled, he knew it was time to share with them the message that had been entrusted to him. The question that we have is this. What would he say to them? What he tells them is what all people need to hear, and that is this. That it is possible to be sincere in our beliefs, to be sincere in our actions, and yet to be extremely mistaken. To be wrong. And that is what he's going to share. And he's going to do it by sharing with us four truths that are outlined very clearly for us and four truths that will help us understand, you know what, there are times in our life where we may be sincere about what we believe, but we may be wrong as well. The first thing that he shares is this. There is a reason behind Christ's death. The reason behind Christ's death is found in verse 17 and 18. Notice what he says. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that as Christ would suffer, this has been fulfilled. In order to understand what he's saying, look again at verses 12 through 16. Notice that there's a contrast that takes place. The word but indicates a strong contrast in thought. Uh, The man who had been healed thought that he had money that would be giving in verse 6, but Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I have I'll give you. In verse 12, there's a contrast of thought. All the people were amazed, and what they thought was, wow, you know what? Peter and John are pretty awesome. But he said to them, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this, at what you just saw, or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? He knew what they were thinking. They were thinking, wow, this guy, these, these people are special people. He said, hey, don't be amazed or impressed by us because it's not about us. He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified Jesus, his servant, the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Remember in the sermon at Pentecost, Peter had to refute the accusation that the believers were drunk. Here he has to refute the accusation or or the the, the credit that was to be given to them that, hey, we had nothing to do with this. In fact, we'll see later in our study that Paul and Barnabas will go through a similar situation where it's like, no, this isn't about us. This is all about Jesus. And let's focus our attention back on Him. Wisely, he mentioned that that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers... So he brought them back to a point where they began to understand. He immediately identified the source of the miracle. As I mentioned, it was a continuation of what they had already seen Jesus do. So he identified the source by saying, hey, this is all about Jesus, God's servant, but you know what? You disowned the Holy and Righteous One of God. You know, think about the boldness the Spirit of God gave to Peter to be able to call him out and basically say, hey, listen, you know what? You disowned the holy and righteous one. Look at the titles that he gives to Jesus. The holy and righteous one says, and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. Saying righteous means to be innocent of all charges. Said so you took an innocent man and you substitute an innocent man for one who was guilty of murder. And the person of Barabbas. Think about what you did. You took an innocent person and you put him to death in exchange for a guilty person. As we know, and as we look through Scripture, that's exactly what God's plan was. The innocent would pay the price for the guilty. And God would accept that. says, but put to death the prince of life. Here he came to bring us life, and you put him to death. says, the one whom God raised from from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. So he lays it out and says, hey, it's in the basis of Faith in his name, in the name of Jesus, which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him, he's given him this perfect health in the presence of all. Think about it. They denied that Jesus was the Savior. They turned him over to be crucified. They murdered him. And basically, Peter just laid it out and told it the way it was. And the reason that he did it, we'll see in a minute, is that even though they crucified him, it was according to the plan of God. And God raised him up exalted to heaven where he is enthroned today and from heaven, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit as he promised to work through his church to convict the world of sin and the plan of God. That's what's happening as we look here. The healed beggar was proof that Jesus was alive. The healed beggar was proof that the the folks that Peter addressed were guilty of killing the Savior of the world. So I thought about that. It's interesting that... that when we think about the fact that he laid out some bad news for him, think about what he did. He said, you people are guilty. You are guilty before God. And he needed to do that as we need to understand today because until one recognizes guilt, one will never ask for or seek forgiveness. If you don't think that you do anything wrong, you certainly wouldn't ask for forgiveness. If you didn't think that you were ill of whatever ailment that it is, you certainly wouldn't seek medical help. If you thought nothing was wrong for you, even if the prescription was called in and it's sitting at the drugstore for you, at the pharmacy, you wouldn't go pick it up if you didn't think anything was wrong with you. See, and that's the truth of the gospel. And what God wants people to recognize and understand is that we're guilty. And there's two things that stood out as I went through this passage. The first one was this it was a response. And the response had to do with how did the religious leaders and many of the citizens respond to Jesus? How did they respond to Jesus? They hated him. They hated him. Why did they hate him? And this goes back to how we can be sincere but wrong. They hated Jesus because they believed him to be a mere man claiming to be God. They hated Jesus, and as we see often in the sermons that we have laid out before us in the book of Acts, remember, Peter continues says, this man whom you crucified, this man whom you delivered up, this man was no ordinary man. They hated him because they believed him to be a man putting himself on an equal plane with their God. And in fact, if it wasn't for God's timetable and His plan, there were many times, for example, in John 8, 58, where Jesus said to the multitudes, including the religious leaders, even before Abraham existed, I am. They knew what He was claiming to be, who He was claiming to be, the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of their fathers who sent uh, Moses to Pharaoh and said, Hey, who shall I say sent me? You tell him, I am. Jesus claimed to be God. They knew that. And as a result, it says they hated him. And they picked up stones to kill him. But it was not according to the timetable of God. That's why they hated him. Think about it for a second. Just from a practical standpoint. They hated Jesus because they thought he was a bastard son of a couple who under very suspicious circumstances gave birth to a child her never having been with a man. They knew of his reputation. They called him the son of fornication. This kid came from a woman who claims to have become impregnated by the Holy Spirit of God, never having been with a man. And you know what? And we don't believe that either. His whole life was under a cloud of suspicion. And yet his whole life, God did the things that he did to point their attention that he was who he claimed to be. See, they hated him. Why did they respond in such a manner? Here's where Peter gives them hope. Notice what he says in verse 17. Now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. The hope that he gives them is this. I know and God knows you acted in ignorance. Ignorance is not to be confused with being stupid. Let me clarify between the two. Stupid people know right from wrong and choose wrong despite the consequences. You follow that? That's a stupid person. You know the difference between right and wrong and yet you choose wrong and you suffer the consequences. That is a stupid person. An ignorant person... Acts not understanding what it is always that they're doing. They suffer the consequences anyway, but they're not sure why. Ignorance and stupidity are two different things. These people were ignorant. In other words, they were sincere in what they did, but they were wrong before God. They were sincere, but they were wrong. They sincerely believed that Jesus was just a man who claimed to be the Messiah and He wasn't. That He was a man who claimed to be equal with God and that He wasn't. And they did everything that they could to silence Him because of what they felt was the confusion that He was created in the minds of the people. They sincerely believed what it was that they were doing. They thought they were doing God a huge favor by getting rid of this phony imposter. They were sincere in what they did, but they were wrong. He gives them hope, though, and says, Hey, you know what, though? God knows how ignorant that you are. He knows that you are sincere, but you're also wrong. So, you know, what's fascinating is in the Old Testament, there's a difference between deliberate sin and sins of ignorance. When you have a chance and you want to read through it, read in Leviticus chapters um, 4 and 5 and Numbers chapter 15, specifically verse 22 through 31. There is a huge difference in the law between sinning ignorantly and sinning with a deliberate understanding of what it is that you're doing. For those who sinned ignorantly, God extended mercy to them and offered them forgiveness to those who sinned deliberately before God knowing exactly what it was that they were doing shaking their, face, their fist in the face of God basically calling God out and saying you know what, I know the difference between right and wrong I know what you're telling me not to do I'm going to do it anyway because I'm bigger than you I'm greater than you and you're not going to do anything to me the Bible says that they would be cut off from their people even to the point where they would be put to death they are stupid people Any person that knows the truth and shakes his fist in the face of God is a stupid person and can't claim ignorance. Any person who does things sincerely but wrongly, they are guilty nonetheless, but listen, it mitigates the circumstances. And God extends to those and us His mercy and forgiveness. He gives us an opportunity and that's exactly what He's saying to them. Remember what Jesus said as He was on the cross? As He looked at those who had put Him there supposedly put him there by human terms, but by God's plan, that's exactly what took place. But he said this to them. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't have a clue what they're doing. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, as he was being stoned to death and looked up into heaven, said the same thing. Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. You know, ignorant people do things oftentimes with a very sincere belief but it still doesn't change the fact that they may be wrong as I thought about this and as I studied this passage I had a renewed sense of hope that I want to share with you and I hope that you that you also come away with this sense of hope and that is this God gives me has given me a vision for people who act ignorantly that don't know the truth There are people that God brings into my life who are ignorant of the truth. Guilty nonetheless, but ignorant of truth. They're sincere in their beliefs and their actions, but they're wrong. You know, as I was dwelling on this and thinking about it, I saw my neighbor pull up, and uh, he's got one of those Darwin, you know, things on the back of his car that's, you know, eating the fish. And I thought, wow, you know, if that's not a, a great illustration of a person who is ignorant, do you really understand what it is that you're saying? Do you really understand that you're saying you deny the very existence of God, the very existence of a Creator, and that you're giving all the credit to you know this, this concept of, this this theory of, this nonsense of, we just all evolved into who we are today? Do you really understand that? How about others that we know? Those who believe that going to church or doing good things, or giving money to help the poor or others, or donating them to whatever philanthropic causes out there. Those who are very sincere in what they're doing, thinking that somehow that'll please God and make them better in the eyes of God, and that's why God will forgive them or take them into heaven after their death. The Bible says that they may be sincere, but they're wrong. Or those that we know that are involved in different cults, different belief systems who are sincere in their approach to what it is that they believe and the actions that they take as a result of what they say they believe. But they're wrong. Or those who say that all will be forgiven and all roads lead to heaven. They're wrong. As sincere as they may be, they're wrong. Those who don't believe in the existence of God and denies existence altogether, they're wrong those who worship things like rocks and stars and the earth and trees and tree frogs and crystals and whatever it is that you know is the thing that will bring them some type of inner peace and strength they're wrong and we're going to see next time as I had a conversation with a friend who says why are people so hostile toward Christians <laughs> there's a reason for that and we'll talk about it next time I went to visit a man who was uh, diagnosed with terminal cancer about a month ago. As I sat by his bedside after many months of praying that God would give us an opportunity to be able to do that and he was never interested and finally got a phone call and said, hey, if you're available, I'd like to meet with you. Sat by his bed for a couple of hours and one of the questions that he had and one of the statements that he made was this. He said, you know what? He goes, "Uh, Chuck, I've always had a problem with... uh, Christians, especially born again Christians. You know. I wanted to explain to him, but I thought I would wait a little bit and listen a little more, talk a lot less. Um, so, really, what is the problem that you've had? He goes, You know, they're so judgmental. And then he looked at me and said, Are you judgmental? And I prayed. And I said, let me ask you a question. I said, if you were driving 90 miles an hour in a school zone or it's posted 25 miles an hour when children are present, the policeman pulled you over. When you wound your window down to talk with him, would you explain to him how judgmental you thought he was being at that point? Well, no. I said, okay, well, let me ask you another question. you got two children. I said, if you gave him a curfew and you said, hey, lights out at 11 by 11.30, quarter to 12, you saw the light on in their room and you opened the door and they were playing Nintendo or watching TV and you had already told them the consequences would be, hey, you'd be grounded for a week or you're not going to watch TV for a week or whatever it would be. I said, uh, now, when you told them that, you know, and they looked at you and said to you, you know, Dad, we're thinking, the problem we have with you is you're just a little too judgmental. I said, what would you think if they had said that to you? I said, you think they're nuts, right? And the wheels were cranking. I said, uh, yeah. I said, why is it that you could lay out a curfew and tell them what the consequence would be for disobedience? And he said, uh, because I'm their dad. And I said, that's exactly right. I said, you know, basically the bottom line is this. The person in authority is the one who makes the rules, right? Right? The reason the policeman can do what he did was because he's been given authority to do it. The reason that you could say that, hey, if you're not in bed by 11 lights out and you're going to get grounded for a week is because you've been given the authority to do it. I said, so, if God says to you that these are the consequences for sin, the wages of sin is death, and I know what those consequences are, and I don't share those with you, I would not only be not judgmental, I would be very unloving if I don't warn you. See, what you take as being judgmental, I look at as being very loving. Now, obviously, there are ways to share that that are more loving than others. But the reality of what God is trying to get across to us is, hey, we need to warn people that even though you may be sincere in what you believe, It is highly possible, it is highly probable, and it is a truth that you're wrong. And let me explain to you why you're wrong. The revelation that he gives, which is fascinating to me, is this. But the things, in verse 18, But the things which God announced before him by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled an interesting thing that he explains to them that, you know, it's a, it's a meeting place of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God's plan was that Jesus would suffer and die for the sins of the world, for those who would believe. But he also held them accountable for the fact that they are the ones who delivered him up to be crucified. God holds him responsible, even though it was his plan that that took place. And the balance that's there is that we need to recognize the fact that even though it's God's plan, God still holds man culpable for the plan. The prophets foretold of the sufferings and the death of Messiah. The nation fulfilled the prophecies without realizing what they were doing. And the bottom line is this, when God cannot rule, He overrules. And He always accomplishes His divine purposes and decrees. When God cannot rule through our submission, He overrules and still accomplishes His purpose and His plan. And it's important that we recognize it. Now, having announced the crime, He presented the evidence and explained the nature of their sins, that they were sincere in what they did, ignorant, but wrong nonetheless, and still guilty before God. He brought them to the point where they should be asking themselves, what are we going to do? What must we do to somehow or another (laughs) to to, to somehow or another be forgiven by God because what you're saying is true that's exactly what we we did and if what you're saying is true that Jesus is the Messiah that we delivered up and we took a guilty man, Barabbas and exchanged him for an innocent man we've committed one of the most heinous crimes in the world you talk about injustice we are so guilty we are so busted before God what are we going to do? And there's where the hope comes in. And there's where where the plan of God comes in. That is the bad news. The good news is the requirement of God for our sins. And that is found in one word. Repentance. Repentance. It says in 19 and 20, Repent. Therefore. What's it there for? Because of what we just read. Because you're guilty. You did exactly what it is that I just said that you did. You took the Holy, Righteous One of God and you delivered Him up to be murdered at the hands of godless men. You are so guilty. What are we going to do? Repent because of what you did. It says repent, for God announced beforehand, He says repent and return that your sins may be wiped away. The definition of repentance is one that's really important for us to understand. It means to change one's mind or purpose. And I think we need to be very concerned about the understanding or lack of understanding of repentance that exists among Christians in our generation. You know, the average person thinks repentance means to feel sorry about their sins or just to feel sorry in general. And that's not the biblical definition of repentance at all. Because, you know, repentance means more than just... You know, what was that the the movie, you know, love love means never having to say you're sorry. Well, repentance means more than just saying you feel bad. Anybody can say they feel bad. I feel bad because I got caught. I feel bad because it looks like I hurt you. And I feel bad because you feel bad, but I don't feel bad because of what I did. And that's always the problem when we're dealing with people. It's like, I don't feel bad for what I did. I feel bad that I got caught. I feel bad that you feel bad. I feel bad that y'all feel bad. But you know what? I don't feel bad for what I'm doing. Repentance is agreeing with God that what you're doing is wrong, having a complete change of mind about it, turning from sin and turning towards God repentance for the people that were listening to the sermon was changing their mind about the identity and the person of Jesus Christ. They believed He was a mere man who was an imposter. Repentance to them was believing that He was and is the Son of God, the Promised One of God, the Savior of the world. It means changing their mind about who they think Jesus is. He is no longer a mere man who is an imposter. He is the Son of God, the Promised One, the Savior of the world. As Thomas said, he repented, he changed his mind when he said, I don't believe that Jesus is alive." But when he saw Him standing before Him, he said, my Lord and my God, end of conversation. Case closed. Sincere people often believe the wrong things. But repentance is turning and changing altogether. It's more than just feeling sorry for something and hoping those feelings go away. I love it. It's tax time. And I ran across a little thing that I read recently that the IRS has a conscience fund. And the conscience fund is for people who feel bad about not paying their taxes in the past and they can just send anonymously a gift, or not a gift, but the amount that they owe, or whatever it is. And, and so, here was a letter that was received by the IRS. It read, it said, Dear sir or ma'am, to whom it may concern, enclosed as a check for $2,000 for back taxes that I owe, I have been unable to sleep for the last two years knowing that I have cheated on my taxes. P.S. If I continue having problems sleeping, I will send you the balance that I owe. That ain't repentance. (laughs) That's just not. That is not the biblical definition of repentance. It is being broken. It is being humbled. The message of repentance was not new to the Jews. John the Baptist preached repentance. Jesus preached repentance. And in one sense, when you think about it, repentance is a gift from God that we know, but He's saying, repent therefore and return. Turn from sin, turn back to God. How does God bring about repentance in our life? Let me just share this with you as we wrap this all up. Four ways God persuades men to repent. Number one, He uses His Word. God uses His Word to cause men to repent. To prompt men to repent. As we read through the Word of God and we learn the truth of God, we begin to realize that, you know what, even though I'm sincere about what I believe, the Bible's telling me I'm wrong in my belief. Even though I'm sincere that, oh, you know what? All roads lead to heaven. I read through the Bible and find out, you know what? we had to enter by the narrow way for broad is the way that leads to destruction. Enter by the narrow gate, Jesus said. Even though we believe in our world that we can believe anything that we want and as long as we're sincere about it, then that's okay. The Bible says, Jesus says, I am the only way. There is no other way to heaven but through me. He is the the only plan of God to bring men back to God. There is no other way. And so, even though we say, but if I do good things and I do this, that, or the other thing, the Bible says it's by grace that we're saved through faith. Not of ourselves. It's a gift from God offered to all who will receive it. Not of works so that none of us could ever boast before God that we somehow were good enough to be in the kingdom of God. It's only by God's grace that we're saved through faith. And so as we begin to look at this, the Word of God begins to convict us. In fact, in Luke 16, verse 30-31, through 31, it illustrates the sufficiency of the Word to cause repentance. Who was a man who was waiting for the final judgment of God in a place called Hades. But the rich man in Hades said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Just let me out of this place so I can warn my family so they can trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. If, if you just let me out to tell them, then they'll repent. You know what Jesus said? They won't believe you. Even if someone came back from the dead to warn you of the reality of the existence of hell. You know what God says about our hard hearts? We wouldn't believe them. We'd write them off. We'd think they're whack. We'd come up with some excuse or to, to not believe what they say. And you know why that is? Because Jesus said this. They had the prophets, the spokesmen for God, They had the Word of God and they denied its truth. Why would they believe you? See, God uses His Word. And as we study His Word, as I mentioned in John 20, it says, Many other signs Jesus therefore performed in the presence of His disciples, which aren't written in this book. But these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. There's also a sorrow for sin that is a sorrow that leads to repentance. In 2 Corinthians 7, 9-10, it says, I now rejoice that you were made sorrowful, but you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. Notice that. We can feel bad for our sin when we are caught, when we realize what we did is wrong. We can feel bad for that. But Judas felt bad for that but he never repented of his sin. The Bible says that God uses sorrow in our hearts to bring us to the point of repentance, which is I agree with you, God, that what I did is wrong, and I ask your forgiveness for that, and I turn from continuing to do that, and I turn to you now and do that which is right. There's a sorrow that leads to repentance that's different from a sorrow that just makes us feel bad and hope that our feelings go away like acknowledgement that what we're doing is wrong. Also, the Bible says that we should be prompted to repent because of God's kindness and His goodness. Do you realize that God could if He chose to just nail any one of us at any time? We are guilty of sin before God. We're going to see that as we go through the book of Acts, specifically about Ananias and Sapphira, an interesting couple. You don't want to miss that study. But he could do it any moment that he wants, and the fact that he's gracious and he's kind to us, and he gives us an opportunity to turn from our sin and to ask for forgiveness is only because of the graciousness and goodness of God. The Bible says that the sun rises and sets on the just and the unjust. God causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. God blesses all, even those who are in rebellion and turn from Him, don't want anything to do with them. I look at my neighbor and I see the health that he has. I see the the house he lives in. I see the car that he drives. I see the business that he's in. I see him be able to take care of his family. Even though he has a Darwin sticker eating the fish on the back of his car, God is still good to him. God is still kind to him. God still gives him life. God still gives him hope. God still gives him chances. God still extends His mercy to him. And many who are like him. God extended mercy and kindness to me at a point in my life when I had nothing to do with God nor wanted anything to do with him. Kindness and mercy of God should draw us to his love and to his character and to ask for forgiveness. And there's also a very real uh, prompting that takes place, and that is fear. We should be afraid. We should be afraid. We should be very afraid of the judgment of God. Not for those of us who have come into faith and trust in Christ. We'll never be held accountable for sin. We'll never be judged for sin. But fear is a motivation in that, you know what? I don't want to do what's wrong because I love God. I don't want to do what's wrong because Jesus paid the ultimate price for my forgiveness. Don't you know that, you're, that you've been bought with a price? And then there are times, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't want to do what's wrong because I'm afraid to get caught. I'm afraid of the consequences that come with it. And you know, and there's wisdom in that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's wisdom in being afraid to get in trouble, to get caught, to pay the consequence. God uses fear to bring us to a point of repentance. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I I hear people all the time say, oh, we should never fear God. What are you, nuts? Do you not understand who God is? I mean, absolutely. I'll tell you what, just like a child should fear his parents when he or she are doing the wrong thing. That they'd step in and say, hey, I'm not going to put up with this nonsense. There's a point where God His goodness and graciousness may also include judging us for our sins so that we don't destroy ourselves or our testimony before the world. Step in and say, I'm not going to let you go any further. That's our prayer. It's always been our prayer for our children. I would hope that you'd pray the same thing. Lord, if they're going to do what's wrong, hey, you know what? Have them get caught right away. Right away, boy. We want them caught right away. Why is that? Well, because if they keep doing what they're doing, thinking there's no consequences, they're deceiving themselves and it gets worse. We had a friend that just went through that last week. It's like, first time, caught. That's beautiful. Don't you think? Every parent here should say amen. Preach brother. Amen. Yeah, that's great. So if you're sitting here today and you're doing something you shouldn't be doing, you know, it's only because of the goodness of God that you haven't been caught. But guess what? You're going to get caught today. So and if that doesn't scare you, I don't know what is. Okay, what's the, 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 as we look at this, there are certain promises that He made, and I love these. The restoration of all things. Notice what He says. He says, if you turn from your sin, God's going to wipe it away. He's going to wipe away your sin. Think about what He's offering to them. You killed Jesus, but if you turn to God and confess your sin, He'll wipe it away as if you never did it. How awesome is the kindness and goodness and mercy and the forgiveness of God. Every one of us who are hearing this word, the promise is true to us as well. You and I are guilty before God. And he says, and if you'll turn to God and you'll ask forgiveness and you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world, you believe that he died for your sins and he rose again from the dead, the Bible says by believing that, God will wipe away all of your guilt. Wipe it away. Not as if you didn't do it because we're all guilty but he will wipe it away and he will see the sacrifice Jesus made as sufficient for your sins and mine. The Bible says as far as the east is from the west, so far God has removed our transgressions from us. Turn to God and have your sins wiped away. Man, that's a sweet deal that He may send Jesus the Christ, the appointed One for you. It says that He will restore all things. If you notice that, He says that the Christ should suffer. Repent therefore, in verse 19, that your sins may be wiped away in order the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that He may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things. There it is. About which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from the ancient time. Remember, what was it that Jesus talked to them about after His resurrection? He talked to them concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Jesus told them that one day He will return and He will establish the kingdom that they understood that God would establish, that His Savior, His Messiah would come and establish His kingdom here on earth. Do you realize what he's saying to the nation of Israel? He's saying, if you turn from your sin, if you repent, and you turn from sin back to God, and you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and you put your faith and trust in Him, and you do it collectively as a nation, that God will send Jesus back to establish His kingdom that He promised. A restoration of all things. You know what that means? Do you ever wonder what it was like in the Garden of Eden? Do you ever wonder what paradise was like? We're going to find out one day those who have put their faith and trust in Christ will reign with Him as He restores all things back to the way they were before sin entered into the world. Can you imagine the Bible talks about what a beautiful place earth will be? Where there will be no weeds, the lion will lie down with the lamb, a child can play in the, the, the nest of a cobra or a venomous snake. There's going to be ultimate peace throughout the world and for a thousand years, that's God's plan. The restoration of all things. His kingdom will be established. And the Bible says that would exactly what would have happened if the nation of Israel had turned from their sin and turned to God's Savior. He goes on to talk about the fact that there's also a warning that we need to recognize, and that's this. And that's the result of rejecting God's prophets. The result of rejecting God's prophets, notice he says, Moses said, the Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything that he says to you. God had told them and has told us throughout human history that God is sending a Savior into the world. The angel said, You shall name Him Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sin, that He is Christ the Lord. And that we are to give heed to that which He says. You know, this morning as I was driving here, I hadn't thought about it until on the way, but the one thing that stood out in my mind was this. You know, do you remember when, when Mary, Jesus' mother, said to the servants at the wedding of Cana? They said to, he, She said to them... And God says to all of us is this, whatever He tells you to do, you listen to Him and you do it. Man, that's a message in itself. Whatever He tells you to do, listen to Him and do it. And when Jesus says to put your faith and trust in Him, listen to Him and do it. Because the consequence of not is devastating and it's eternal. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him would what? Not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever does not listen to Jesus will be utterly destroyed and shall perish. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. As we put all of this together, we read or hear often about tragic situations that happen in life. Read of a nurse who administered the right dose of medication, but to the wrong patient with a lethal result. We read or hear about the pilot who misreads his instruments and in all sincerity flies his plane into the side of a mountain or as in the case of JFK Jr., flew upside down into the ocean. I read recently of a police officer who was called to the scene. There was a man at the scene with a gun. And when he arrived, he looked through the window and saw a bunch of people standing on one side of a room and another man standing on the other side of the room holding a gun. And instinctively, to protect those he thought were in danger, he fired his revolver, killing the man with the gun, only to find out later that they were at a costume party and that the gun was not real. One thing that every one of those scenarios have in common is this. Every person that acted, acted sincerely. But they were wrong. Their sincere intentions may have mitigated the circumstances, but the bottom line is that they were still wrong in their actions. And so it is in the world today that we live. There are many people who act sincerely, but they're still wrong. And they act in ignorance. Only to come to realize that through God's truth, that God is prompting them, and maybe you to repent, to turn from what you thought was right to that which is right. You know, the person that hears God's truth and then continues to rebel against God is no longer ignorant, but they're stupid. And that's the line that they cross. Our responsibility as those who know the gospel, the bad news first, you're guilty, I'm guilty. You don't think you're guilty. Ask the average person in the street, do you realize that you've offended a holy and righteous God? You know what their response would be? Do you realize you just offended me by saying I've offended God? I'm okay. I'm not that bad. Don't tell me I've offended God. I haven't done anything wrong. The purpose of God's truth is to reveal to them that they're guilty. Have you ever lied? Have you ever cheated? Have you ever stolen? Have you always kept God first? Did you always honor your mother and your father? Did you ever covet your neighbor's goods or your neighbor's wife? Did you ever see them have something you thought, I should have that? Well, yeah, we all do that. That's right. That's why we're all guilty. None are righteous. No, not one. All are guilty and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. Spiritual separation from God for all of eternity. We're all, we're all guilty. But the hope is this. Now that you heard the truth, let me tell you the good news. That God knows we're all guilty. And because He loves us so much He sent His Son into the world to die in our place on the cross so that you and I who would believe that coming to faith in Him would not be held accountable for sin. The wages of sin is death, absolutely. But the good news is the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And having put our faith and trust in Him the Bible says we become children of God to those who believe in His name. The Bible says that at that point that we will never be held accountable for our sin as far as the east is from the west, so God has removed our transgressions. That's all good news. Now you're no longer ignorant of the truth. Failure to believe is just stupid on your part. The evidence is overwhelming. And so as we look at this, we begin to understand that we can be sincere but wrong. As a Christian, I'm going to close with some encouragement to all of us, and that's this. As we share with those around us, several things stand out. Number one, God is long-suffering with lost sinners. He's patient toward those who are lost. Entrusting us to share with them the truth of what I just shared with you. The leaders of Israel had rejected the ministry of John the Baptist. They rejected the ministry of Jesus Christ. They offered Him up to be crucified and yet God still extended mercy and forgiveness to them. He says all you got to do is turn from sin and turn to God and He'll forgive you and He'll heal you and He'll wipe away your sin. The witness involves the bad news of sin, as I mentioned, and guilt before the good news of forgiveness in Christ. Because until you know you're guilty, you're not going to ask for forgiveness. Until you know you're lost, you're not going to seek a Savior. That's the reality of the Gospel. It isn't, you've got something missing from your life, why don't you try Jesus and add Him? That's not the Gospel. That's nonsense. You know, you need a balance You know, you need to go to church, you need to read the Bible, you need a little spiritual balance. That's the world that we live in, you know. You need to start exercising, you need to start eating right, you need a little more social time. And you know what, And spiritually, why don't you just have a little more balance? That is not the Gospel. The Gospel is we're guilty, God loves us, He sent Christ to die for us, do you believe in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sin? That's the Gospel. What's interesting is, as I read this passage, to reach the masses of people, we need to start helping individuals. Think about this. The audience that God presented to Peter was a result of him reaching out to one lame man. Loving people individually, one at a time, will open up a door where God will bring an audience to see what's going on. And the last thing is this. Genuine conversion always results in life-changing experience. That lame man leapt up Dancing and leaping and praising God. He stood, and everyone knew where he stood. He stood behind Peter and John when they were arrested and thrown into prison. He didn't care anymore about what anybody thought because his life had been changed by Jesus Christ. Life changing experience. You cannot come to faith in Christ without your life being changed. That's the truth. Final thought it's not enough to be sincere. The most important thing is to be right in our beliefs and in our actions. And it's God's truth that tells us what's right. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for what? Teaching, telling us what is right. Reproof, telling us when we're wrong. Correction, telling us how to get right. And training, telling us how to live right. So that the man of God may be adequately equipped to do the work of God. Father, we just love You. We thank You for the time that we have to be here today. We just thank You for Your Word. And God, we just pray... As often, as was mentioned many times, that you would reveal to us where we are sincere but wrong in our life. In our relationship with you and our relationship with others. God, I pray for those who are hearing this message who think that there are many roads that lead to heaven. As sincere as they may be, that your word would convict their hearts. As Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father but through me. God, help us not to mistake sincerity for truth. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.